0: People can help the elderly load their cars with groceries. You know, I got a neighbor right now who's trying to help me get a cheaper price on fixing my leaky roof, you know, and he's not a believer. And that's a good thing in the eyes of man in general. We can go on and see people helping refugees. And we recognize that non-Christians do this and they can do this because of something called God's common grace. Because of God's common grace given to everybody We can, in fact, do good things. But, these good things can never earn us any status, can never work towards our salvation before God, it can never get us righteousness before God, which is what we need before God. And so regardless of how many good things a person can do before man, we are spiritually dead before God. Did you notice that the the cause of our deadness is... Because of our transgressions and sins. I think this underlines the fact that we are spiritually dead before God. You know, God draws the boundaries, but then we transgress them. We actually go against them. And then we are spiritually dead because we have sinned or fallen short or missed the mark of God's determined standards. So you see that you see God's boundaries that we transgress. We have God's standards that we fall far from. And so we are spiritually dead before God. Thus, before God we are dead men walking you know today so many people think of sin as crossing a boundary of the older generation or something like that and we see this attitude in pop culture and almost you know being in sin is like blazing a new path for all the younger generation to to go on and and lead and they actually have a cheerleader leading them someone blazing the trail for them to walk in and so And I've used this example before, but Britney Spears sang recently against traditional moral values. Living in sin is the new thing. Taylor Swift, on a recent album, sings to a man who is not her husband, thinking of things that a woman should only do with her husband. I can show you incredible things. Sin, she says. But again, sin, according to the Bible, is going against God. Having a depraved heart, a sinful heart, is fundamentally a heart that is set against God, according to the Bible, is fundamentally hostile to God, it says, the Bible. So this deadness, it brings about a spiritual alienation, a spiritual separation from God, and man, ever since the beginning, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, as it's described there, is born in sin. We really have hearts that are bent on rebelling against God according to this passage we possess no spiritual resources to please god because we are dead if you want to think about descending into the dungeon of depravity the first level that we so clearly are acquainted with on this tour is that we are all dead continuing to descend there in this heart of depravity we see that sinful man is not only spiritually dead but in fact we are in bondage So if we were to descend into this heart of depravity, we see there what people are doing as they are dead men walking. Look there in verse 2. They are dead in their transgressions and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You see here that the spiritual deadness, having walked in transgressions and fallen from God's standards, they are engaged in bondage and enslavement. In short, if you want a summary of what this looks like, this looks like living for something other than the glory of God, living something, uh, living for something other than the glory of God. So we follow the course of this world, it says there, doing what we in our sinful hearts and in the world in all of our sinful natures want. Sure, we might give lip service to God for those who might be nominal Christians, but you know what? We don't really live for Him. This is not a neutral activity, mind you. This is not a neutral activity, but we are busy in sinful activity. I mean, imagine the walking dead as God sees things. Busy about going their lives, but all the while neglecting God. So this zombie-like activity describes all of us here in this room either now or in relation to the past. Living against God. Living our lives without a care for the giver. Without a care for him. Without a care for his boundaries. Without a care for his will or even his purposes. And this, friends, is the essence of sin pastor and author john piper tried to get at the essence of sin and this is what he wrote he said sin is the glory of god not honored the holiness of god not reverence the greatness of god not admired the power of god not praised the truth of god not sought the wisdom of god not esteemed the beauty of god not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The promises of God, not believed. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. The person of God, not loved this is sin so if you're visiting with us I wonder if you are busy going about your lives even busy about going or busy about doing good works and you're busy doing these things without making the worship of God your main goal you could be busy working hard You, know, you just list all the moral things that the world in general might respect you know you could be busy working hard, Busy caring for your family, as many of us are, in fact, trying to do. Uh, You could be busy making and then giving away all of your money. You could be busy sort of defending your company because you know that underneath your company you might employ tens, hundreds, if not thousands of employees. But see, friends, you see how you can be so busy doing all these things, but you can still offend God? When you go about your own lives setting about your ultimate or setting your ultimate loves on your career or even upon others or even upon yourself all the while neglecting the very one who gives you life and breath right now. That's following the course of this world with every care for yourself. And not a care for your maker. The Bible says that that person is still dead in their sins and transgressions. As Jesus said. As the first, great, the first and greatest commandment is, you shall love God. And friends, you realize that this sin knows no discrimination. It knows no prejudice. So no matter what race you are, we are sinners. In this room, you might find on the spectrum of those who have been saved, you might find those who were are greatly immoral. They are dead in sin. We're dead in sin. On this side of the spectrum, you might find that the whole entire world, they might look over here on the right side of the spectrum and, and recognize that that is a moral person. right? Those are moral deeds. But friends, apart from Jesus, even those moral acts do not save. They are not spiritual resources to be trusted in because we can go about busying our lives and doing all of these things without a care in the world. For God, your creator. Well, according to the Bible, behind influencing our hearts in this neglect of God, there are indeed spiritual realities. There are spiritual realities behind following the course of this world. Did you notice there in verses 2 and 3, you see there that those who follow the course of the world, they follow the prince of the power of the air. This most likely is a reference to Satan. Satan. Logically, without doubt, it leads us to Satan, who is described and characterized as being at work in the sons of disobedience. That is, those who disobey God. Elsewhere, you know, Satan is named as the God of this age, or the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4, verse 4 reads this. The God of this world, okay, that's Satan, that's what's going on here in this world. You know, Satan had fallen from God, that he had rebelled against God, and so he was therefore cursed, and his angels too fell. And this is what he's doing, busy here in this world. Insofar as God gives him ability to. He says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That is what they have done. So if you're a Christian, before you became a Christian, the God of this world had blinded your minds of the unbelieving so that the reason being, the purpose is they might not see the light of the gospel. Those are the spiritual realities behind unbelief and it's just undeniable when you read these passages here. Not only do we bring no spiritual resources to our salvation, we can't even see right apart from Jesus Christ. Right as in right in a way that God counts as being righteous. People cannot evaluate rightly because the God of this age has blinded their minds. You know, this is part of what is involved in following the passions of our flesh. Did you notice that there? Both the desires of the body and of the mind. That's what we were giving ourselves to, the desires of the body and of the mind. Now, certainly there can be some pretty spectacular ways in which the prince of the power of the air is at work. So we can think of like demon possessions, which are so clear in the Gospels. But you know what Paul says here? What we are, to, what he helps us focus on in terms of the prince of the power of the air and how he works amongst the sons of disobedience? I mean, this is what he explains it as in Galatians chapter 5. He elaborates on it, and this is what he says. Just the basic stuff, right? This is like sexual immorality. So, okay, if you're a Christian and you before you became a Christian, if you were busy in sexual immorality, well, Scripture says that you were... That the prince of the power of the air was at work there in your disobedience. Here's another one: impurity, sensuality, idolatry, which doesn't only include falling down before some sort of graven image. It just could be worshiping anything other than God. Here's another one: enmity. Right? You ever have anger? Ever have hatred towards others? Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Uh, there's so many. It's just like the basic stuff of life. It's sinfulness. The result of this is that we are all under condemnation. So if, let's say, you know we're on this tour of this dungeon of depravity, descending the levels, first is just deadness, and what is it that we are doing? We are dead men walking, giving ourselves, following the course of this world, and then down at the very bottom, you see sort of the most weighty thing, is that these people, we, before Christ, we fell underneath the judgment of God. Look there, verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is the bottom floor, so to speak, of the heart of depravity. I mean, being dead, we have no spiritual resources. Following Satan, we live to fulfill the flesh. And then here we have the final sentence under God's judgment children of wrath now this doesn't mean that we are wrath's children but we apart from christ are worthy to receive divine judgment for sinning against our creator that is we are those who were to inherit wrath and he he says there he i paul himself identifies with this group he says we all once lived in the passions of our flesh in verse three and then he says there that we were by nature children of wrath like them all. So he doesn't say at all that Christians are uh, above this in their own state in their own righteousness or anything like that. He says we ought to be identifying with the people who are in this dungeon. He's he's helping us tour our very own selves apart before Jesus Christ. Like a lawyer, Ephesians 2 presents evidence about how we as sinners are to face God's wrath and judgment given we don't honor him as God, given that we do not care about him as our creator. So, you see the predicament that this leaves us in. Dead in sin and slave to the world, the devil and the flesh, and under God's condemnation. The question, of course, is, when we descend all the way down to the bottom level, is who then can save us? You know, the beautiful thing, Christian, as we are reminded here about the grace of God, you know, if you go back to chapter one, by the way, if you go back to chapter one, you see what he's doing in verses uh, one to 10 of chapter two. Paul prays, he prays that having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we all may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working that he did in Jesus. So he's he's explaining here, he's helping us understand more about what this power actually looks like in our lives. And so then naturally in in chapter two, verses one to 10, he takes it, he descends us, he helps us walk down all the way down to the bottom floor, and where is there to go? To whom shall they look? Can we look at ourselves based on Ephesians chapter two, verses one to three? No. Can we look at other people? to gain salvation from them, to gain the resources from fellow man? The answer is no. He brings us all the way down to the bottom in order that we might look all the way up. Look at the next two words there. Down in the depths of depravity. He has these two words. But God. But God there in verse 4. How is that for a light of hope beaming into the dungeon of our own selfishness? Uh, you know, those, those of you who enjoy grammar, those of you who might be grammar nerds, um, and I might I consider myself to be one as well, insofar as it helps me love Jesus more and understand the Bible. You know, what's interesting here in verses 2 to uh, verses 1 to 3 is that there is no main subject. There is no main verb. It's like he says something like this. He says, we were dead. Wait for it, Christian. We were enslaved. Wait for it. We were condemned like the rest of mankind. Wait for it. But God. Verses 1 to 3 present our absolute helplessness and hopelessness. Until these two little words, one interjection, but, and then one great and powerful subject, God. It's no wonder the British preacher D. Martin Lloyd Jones said that the whole essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ can be found in these two little words right here. This brings us to point number two saved by whom? We are saved by God. Do you feel the power of divine intervention here as you just sort of read through these verses? If we are to be saved, we need God to show up and deliver us from our depravity and then to relieve us from the judgment that we ourselves deserved that we earn for ourselves. And look at what God does. I mean, just go ahead and skim verses 5 to 6. You see the main main subject, God, and then you see all those verses there, but God... Made alive, God raised, and then God seated. So here we see that the dungeon of depravity, friends, if you yourselves know to be a, know yourself to be a sinner, perhaps you, Christian, are feeling that guilt again, that guilt that you should not feel, an ungodly guilt, an ungodly shame, and you feel so much like you are somewhere in the dungeon of depravity. Here we see that the dungeon of depravity is never too deep. For God's saving grace. Verse 1 We were dead in our sins, trespasses, and sins, but God, verse 5, made us alive. Verse 2 We followed the course of this age under the influence of Satan and his powers, but God, verse 6, raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places. He doesn't just raise us up to neutrality. So that we therefore get to work, we work ourselves up, or maybe we work ourselves down. He doesn't do that. He He goes all the way down, His grace does, to the bottom floor of the dungeon of depravity. And raises us all the way up into the heavenly places. Look there in 121, you guys realize that this is where Jesus Himself is seated? Far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That's where he seats us. Untouchable by Satan. The prince of the power of the air. The one who is at work. In the sons of disobedience. In this area. But here God raises us up. All the way up with Jesus. Into the heavenly places. Where he himself is seated. Verse 3. Though we were under condemnation. The very bottom of the dungeon of depravity. Heirs of God's wrath. But God made us heirs of grace. Look at verse 7. And look why he does this. Why is it that he raises us up? It is so that, purpose, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness in Jesus. This is the benevolent God that we worship. We already saw in Ephesians chapter 1 that he lavishes on us the riches of his grace. And here he intends, the very purpose for you, Christian, is that he seats you up into the heavenly places where Jesus is seated in order that he might go on and bless you so much more. You recognize that all of these blessings come through Jesus Christ on the cross. Though Jesus committed no sin, he enters into the dungeons of depravity and descends down, down, down definitely not because he himself had sinned, but in order to suffer at the hands of those who had, and to suffer as if he had, ultimately bearing the wrath that you, Christian, deserve, tasting death for you. But of course, as this was a rescue plan, God worked his immeasurable greatness of his power by raising him from the dead and seating Christ at his right hand. And so when you go down to look at your own heart of depravity before Jesus Christ saved you, you aren't supposed to stay down there at the bottom level. But as Jesus Christ is resurrected from the grave and seated at Christ at God's right hand, so we too are supposed to look up. And you know what our passage today tells us? What God did in Christ, so he does to everyone who repents of their sins and believes. Look there in verse 5, in Christ We are made alive together with him. Verse 6, in Christ who was raised, we are together raised with him. And then also, in Christ who is seated in the heavenly places, we are raised, we are seated together with him. So, you see what's going on here? He takes us down in order that we might be brought up. This is the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. The question that we need to ask, though, is why? Point number three. Why does God save? We look at what we are saved from. We looked at God as the one who saves us. And then point number three, look at why does God save? Three reasons Paul brings to the forefront of our minds here. And thank God that they all have to do with him. You see there, God's mercy. We see God's grace or God's love and then God's grace. God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace. We look at mercy and love together there in verse four. Did you notice that uh, these are God's excellent qualities that Paul displays for everybody to see here in this great work of salvation? That's what you were. You were all the way down the dungeon of depravity. Now look at this. And he just shoves these excellent characteristics of God. He puts on display, but God. But what's amazing there is he wants us to pause. He says, no, wait, I'm going to get to what he did. I'm going to get to the three things, the marvelous things that he did. What I want you to see right now here in this space is I want you to look at his character. Before he gets to what God does, here we have an opportunity to look and see again who God is. So you see, but God, being rich in mercy. God is regularly described in the Bible as being abundant in mercy. It's strange to think about God being abundant in mercy, isn't it? Very strange, I think. Not giving people what they deserve. So if you guys here are tempted to think that God is only a God of judgment, a God who's trigger-happy and is righteous justice, uh, this here is a, it balances it out. He is rich in giving people what they don't deserve. Oh, sorry, that's grace. Not giving people what they rightly deserve. Can you imagine God doing this? He sends Jesus Christ to earth, and Jesus is on a mission, right? The first time he comes, he comes to save. The second time he comes, he comes to judge. The first time he comes, he comes to save. He's on dead set on this mission as he goes to the cross. Trigger happy in mercy. Not giving people what they deserve. Alleviating them of their justice. Oh, this makes me happy, God says. I delight, I am abundant in relieving people of their rightful judgment that they themselves deserve. It's hard to grasp what it looks like for someone to be abundant in mercy. But yet God, plenty of times in the Old Testament, this is exactly what he is. You know, this term mercy here is associated with a steadfast love. It's this type of steadfast love where he sets his love upon a people. And even though they're always wandering away and sinning and even whoring after other gods, yet God in his mercy still keeps his covenant. That's his mercy. We deserve all of those things. We deserve all of the weight of being depraved and sinful. (laughs) Yet he delights in freeing prisoners. Next one is love. He says, but God being rich in mercy, still in verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's fantastic. He points to God's character, both in his mercy and then his love. But it's not just love. It's great love. And it's not just great love that exists in the heavenlies. It's great love that finds its object in sinners. It's great love. Just, you know, these are uh, over-the-top descriptions here he's abundant in mercy he's rich in mercy and here he's he has this great love so christian do you realize that you are an object of god's great love and this isn't like you put on you are you know you walk down the catwalk strutting all your stuff as if you are neutral and then therefore you earn god's love like so many of us think we do with uh, you know let's say our spouses or boyfriends or girlfriends you know you put on some sort of exhibition show make yourself all beautiful that's not God's love here it's like he knows in exactly where he goes and he says you know what i don't want people who think that they're neutral i want people all the way down in the dungeon and it is those that i shower my mercy on it is those that i find to be my objects of love Why is it that we have become objects of God's love? Right? We already looked at previously that he makes his love known to us by electing us. He makes his love known to us by redeeming us, by forgiving us. He makes his love known to us by adopting rebels. His love is made known to us through the giving of his promises. And then he gives the spirit as a down payment. What did we do to become objects of his love? The amazing thing is that we did nothing. We don't do anything to earn his love and salvation because what he brings to the table of your salvation is mercy, love, and then grace. Look there in verses 8 and 9. Remember, we're still asking the question, why does he save? It says, therefore, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why is it that we are saved? It's because of God's grace. That's really what's been on display in Ephesians up until now, and even in this passage, isn't it? In Ephesians 1, we talked about the, the breadth of God's grace. So there we looked at the train tracks of God's grace comes out of eternity past. And then we looked at the train tracks of God's grace goes into eternity future. And then God's true people have been elected before eternity or into eternity past. And then we have an inheritance awaiting us into eternity future. That's the breadth of God's grace. And then here in Ephesians 2, we see the depth of God's grace down into the dungeon of depravity and then into soaring into the heights of the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. God's grace descends to sinful men in Christ Christ. And then God's grace ascends, bringing Christ and everyone who repents and believes with him into the heavenly places. No wonder the refrain of the Christian life is repeated three times in chapter 1. Go ahead and look back there. Verse 6. God acts in salvation. To the praise of his glorious grace. Look there in verse 12 of chapter 1. God again acts in salvation to the praise of his glory. And then the same thing is repeated there in verse 14 to the praise of his glory. You know why he deserves all the glory? It's because in salvation he brings all the resources to the table, he graciously gives them and bestows them and lavishes his grace upon sinners with inescapable clarity verse 8 says that all of salvation including your faith christian is not your own doing but is a gift of god it is unearnable there is no need to repay and in fact you cannot repay these great and marvelous blessings how can we even say that we bring resources to salvation when salvation is all of grace If we did, then salvation would entirely, or be at least in part, by works. I mean, there's so many people who believe that salvation, at least in part, if not all out, is by works. But again, you see the corrective there in verse 10. It is not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. Our lives could not be more different if you're a Christian. You see there... In the early verses of there, chapter 1, we see there that we were dead in our sins. We were walking in the course of this world. But now, after we have been saved, we are alive to Christ and we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. Christian, in light of the fact that God brings all the resources to your salvation, are you a humble person? Are you a humble person? you realize that boasting in anything, in anything, just makes absolutely no sense? First Corinthians chapter 4, Paul poses the question, what makes any of you guys to differ? So if you got one person here who believes and this person here who doesn't believe, what makes one differ than the other? God goes on and he says, everything you have has been given to you by God. And so you therefore cannot boast in anything. So even the person who has faith and the person who doesn't have faith, the one who has faith can never look over here and boast in the fact that they possess faith because that didn't come with them. That is isn't inherent inside of them to begin with. You can think about gifts. You can think about all sorts of things. Are you a humble person? I wonder if people look around at you and you know they see you singing these songs, and can it be quickening ray went out from God's eye and you rose from the dead your chains were broken and so you marched out freely you know I wonder if you actually sing those things with a humble heart and you do so every single day does humility mark you you know what I think Paul fully intends for us to grow in humility and you know how he wants us to do that He takes this on. He takes us on a tour down into the dungeons of our former nature, our former state of being in order that we might see the present state of being. So those of you who are afraid or think, you know, don't think negative thoughts because we're going to invite negative thoughts into our lives presently. That's clearly not Paul's agenda. His agenda is, you dive into this, verses 1 to 3, and you see and you know and you're being reminded of your depravity and what you were prior to Jesus Christ, but then you don't stay there. You look up the only place you can go and realize that if you are saved, you are saved because of God's divine intervention. So here I think there is every reason we should be mindful of again, of our sinful depravity that we possess, the state of our beings that we were before Jesus Christ, and then, once again, see where we are right now, seated in the heavenly places, and look all over the place and think, wow, the only reason why I am here, presently, believing in Jesus Christ, is all because of His grace. Thank God for this reminder that He brings the resources all of his resources to our salvation. And even when you sin, there are still resources of grace for you. Incredible that when he adopts people into his family, he seats them with Jesus Christ, and then those who are in Jesus Christ can never be snatched out of his hand. But yet they are present with Christ in the heavenlies, untouchable, finally, by Satan, the prince of the power of the air, you know, as we conclude, let me speak to you if you're visiting with us as a Christian. You know, I know that some people say that Christians just want to make people feel bad. Calling everyone sinners and children of wrath. But I hope you see that while God says indeed that we are all sinners, God himself moves the story of the sinner towards salvation. And all by his grace. So here at church, you recognize that we sing of God's grace. We preach of God's grace. We read of God's grace. We encourage one another to live according to God's grace. As it says there, we are designed for God's works. The reason why we do all this is because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so friends, if we think back to the undercover boss and the employee, employer situation, the illustration there, what would you make? Of the employee who is strapped for cash, struggling to pay finances, struggling to pay debt, have all, has all these desires, yet they have no resources. And then the boss, the CEO, the creator comes to them and says, I give you everything. What would you make of the person who says, now nah, I can do it on my own. I got it covered. Isn't that interesting, right? Even if you just take away faith and we examine that situation, secular media, this television show, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that that show would get canceled in a heartbeat if that's what happened every single time there. I think we would say, I think you would say that that person is absolutely foolish. Friends, in Jesus Christ. We have grace upon grace upon grace. And you know what Jesus is called in Titus chapter 2, verse 11? Jesus is called the appearance of God's grace. If you want to know God's grace, if you want to see all resources that delivers you from your worst condition, uh, you know, once again, this is not neutral as if this were undercover boss, but friends, you bring liabilities to the table. And praise God that God brings His grace, His mercy, and His love. Friends, what will you do with this grace in front of you? Repent and believe, and you will know this grace. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption into His family, where you would be untouched, finally, by the course of this world. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You that You are a God of grace, a God of love, and a God of mercy. We know that our hearts are so much not like Yours, as the objects of our love are so often those whom we determine to be wonderful, beautiful, those who have indeed earned our salvation, as we can think about Uh, how even right now perhaps relationally there are broken relationships and in those relationships yet we don't want to love the other person but you Lord, you say that we are sinners and yet even though we have broken the relationship yet you Lord are so good and so gracious and so loving to always pursue us seeking reconciliation seeking to alleviate us from divine punishment even, all that through the grace of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sins. Father, we pray that you would make us a humble people in consideration of the fact that you are a powerful God and in you there is all resources of salvation. In your name we pray, amen.